0: Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com
1: slash Enterprise Data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day, we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. It's hard to know what President Trump's position is on the hush money paid to adult film star Stephanie Clifford because it keeps changing, thanks to his attorney, Rudy Giuliani. One thing that has remained consistent in the Trump defense is the contention that it's the president's choice whether to talk to special counsel. Robert Mueller, even under subpoena. Speaking to ABC's This Week on Sunday, Giuliani reiterated that the president doesn't even have to comply with a subpoena to testify.
2: We don't have to. He's the president of the United States. We can assert the same privilege as other presidents have. President Clinton negotiated a deal in which he uh, didn't admit the effectiveness of the subpoena. They withdrew it.
1: My guest is Solomon Weisenberg, a partner at Nelson Mullins. He was the deputy independent counsel in the Whitewater Lewinsky investigation. Sol, let's let's talk about the last thing that Trump said. Trump's attorneys can exert the same privileges that other presidents have, but would that protect him from having to testify under a grand jury subpoena?
2: Well, first of all, the statement that uh Trump can't be subpoenaed or that he can ignore a subpoena is clearly wrong. The two Supreme Court cases uh that really deal with the issue. One is US versus Nixon. In that case the court enforced the subpoena against the sitting president eight to zero in a criminal case and in Clinton versus Jones, or Jones versus Clinton, the civil case involving Paula Jones, the court, I'm talking about the Supreme Court, rejected President Clinton's argument that you can't subpoena a sitting president. So um, he's completely wrong. What the president can do is. Um, Invoke executive privilege, and that would be very interesting because in that regard, President Trump might be in a little stronger constitutional position than President Nixon was. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. My guess is that if Mueller issues a subpoena, the president will invoke executive privilege.
1: And just talk a little bit about executive privilege and, you know, what that pertains to. It doesn't pertain to things before he was president or the many, many things that he has tweeted about and talked about.
2: Well, it does it could relate to some things right before uh, when he's in the transition period after he's won the election, when he's contemplating being the president. but by and large you're you're correct. Now, the other question is, can you waive executive privilege? Sure, any privilege can be waived, but that would be that would be a fact question. The main problem that Mueller may have is that he has not been given the explicit authority to litigate or contest executive privilege issues. Recall in U.S. versus Nixon, the Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski issued a trial subpoena, or caused the trial subpoena to be issued to President Nixon, and one of President Nixon's arguments was this is an intra-branch dispute. The court shouldn't even rule on this. Leon Jaworski is an inferior officer, I'm the president, and I'm invoking executive privilege. And the Supreme Court rejected that argument by President Nixon, but they did so because the regulation, the federal regulation that governed Leon Jaworski, gave Jaworski the explicit authority to contest executive privilege. Bob Mueller does not have that authority, so he might not even get the first base on the executive privilege issue. It's kind of a technical point, but it's an important one. I do want to say one thing. Sure. Uh, Mayor Giuliani keeps saying that there's immunity. A president doesn't have to respond to a subpoena because there's presidential immunity written into the Constitution. That's completely false. <laughs> there's <laughs> no there's no immunity written into the Constitution. He's made a number Giuliani of preposterous, preposterously inaccurate statements. So uh, I'd be very embarrassed if I were him.
1: Do you have any? inkling of what's happening because he's also, you know, he's stated facts and then taken them back and Trump has said, well, he's just come on and he doesn't know the facts. I mean, it seems like it's very much being mishandled.
2: He's he's winging it. Uh, he should change his name to Rusty Giuliani because <laughs> he's, he's very rusty on the law. You know, Rusty Rudy, we should, the president likes to give people nicknames. We should call him Rusty Rudy.
1: That's a good one, Sal. So now let's turn to something else he said yesterday, which he did not rule out that Trump would plead the fifth in response to Mueller's Russia investigation. Now, is this a president, this is a political decision as much as anything, is this a president that could actually get away with taking the fifth? Or is Mueller dealing with a president that's different from other presidents before him, the, the one that you had to deal with, for example?
2: Well, uh, a lot of the things that Trump and his surrogates are doing are, are straight out of the Clinton a playbook, particularly attacking the the special counsel. In our case, it was the in, uh, independent counsel. The one big difference is that President Clinton did it through surrogates, and President Trump is doing it himself, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and through surrogates. But the the your question can he can he get away with taking the fifth? First of all, any white collar attorney will tell you that if you had a normal client in in President Trump's situation, you would insist that they invoke the Fifth Amendment. I've been saying for months that, you know, President Trump could could pull it off politically because, and it looks like they may be preparing to do that, though I think they're going to go the executive privilege route uh, by saying, look, this is a setup, I've said this is a witch hunt, and the Supreme Court has said for 70 years that the privilege against self-incrimination in the Fifth Amendment protects the innocent as well as the guilty. And it specifically protects them from the artful questions of prosecutors and people like that. And I've said all along, this is a gotcha investigation, and I'm not going to submit to that. So I think he's he's setting the groundwork for possibly doing that, and I think uh, he can pull it off.
1: Well, in in about, do we have about a minute and a half here. Could the special counsel immunize him by giving him use and derivative use immunity?
2: Well, um, if he takes he, the she, fifth he could certainly he could certainly try to do that yes but then what do you do if he gives him immunity and the president pulls a Susan McDougal and says uh, i don't care if you give me immunity i'm still not going to talk uh, you know do you try to uh, indict the president for contempt like we did against Susan McDougal well that's a problem because doj regulations which Mueller has to follow say you can't indict a sitting president so that would be very interesting. I mean, I think at the end of the day, he will probably invoke executive privilege. And only if he loses on the executive privilege issue, the president, that is, will he go and invoke the Fifth Amendment.
1: So, Saul, in about uh, 30 seconds, what are the chances, in your opinion, of his actually sitting down of his own accord after a deal is hammered out with the special counsel? 1.3%. <laughs> I won't ask you how you came to that exact, but I will take that as gospel. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to have you here. That's Solomon Weisenberg, a partner at Nelson Mullins, and he was the deputy independent counsel in the Whitewater Lewinsky investigation. In a matter of hours, the government got a one-two punch to the heart of its five-year crackdown on deceptive bond practices. Former Jeffries Group trader Jesse Litvak, the first person charged in the federal crackdown, walked out of a federal prison in Florida last Thursday after an appeals court in New York threw out his conviction for the second time. Just hours before, a Connecticut jury acquitted former Cantor Fitzgerald Managing Director David Demos of defrauding customers by lying about the prices of mortgage-backed securities. My guest is Peter Henning, a professor at Wayne State University Law School. Peter, these were two of the higher profile cases in the bond market. Were these devastating results for the government? Well,
3: Certainly, uh, the answer to that is yes, Um, at least when you look at trading in the types of securities involved here, which were residential mortgage-backed securities, the kind of securities that many claim were at the heart of causing the financial crisis back in 2008. the, the, The traders involved here and the customers Well, on both sides, we're very sophisticated. So this isn't buying and selling corporate bonds or stock or something like that. These weren't mom-and-pop investors. These were uh, sophisticated institutional investors. So it's devastating for the government's attempt to police that market. Uh, I would have to say that it's going to be very difficult going forward for the government to ever get a conviction in this area.
1: The common thread, basically, is that bond traders can't lie to customers while haggling over prices. But there's a lot more to it than that. Talk about the scope of this and, and what the why the government had so many problems proving these cases. Well, I think part of the
3: problem was that... Um these Again, these weren't people who were just coming in and dealing with their broker. It wasn't like uh, they were just walking in saying, give me the best bond you can. That the buyers are sellers here. They were transactions on both sides. Um, they did their own analysis of the mortgage-backed securities, figuring out what their likely value were. So what a salesman or a trader might say, this is what we paid for it, the argument was that really shouldn't have much influence on the decision whether to buy or sell And certainly, at least with the not guilty verdict, that seemed to have taken hold with the jury. And I think in LitFact's case, it convinced the Court of Appeals that the government's evidence really just was too thin to be able to prove a fraud, even though there's a lie. And that's really the starting point. They they did lie about what their firms paid or bought the securities for. But the courts essentially have said that's irrelevant.
1: So... Liftex arrest in January of 2013 put traders on notice it led to financial firms clamping down on sort of the shady sales tactics how much have traders changed their behavior that lying or the puffing in the negotiation and what happens now
3: well, I, that's a good question about, you know, is it just puffing or is it really lying? The, the firms are going to be more careful. They, they don't like being caught, and there's certainly reputational damage here that if you get um, – known as someone who plays fast and loose with the truth, then the investors aren't going to come to you in the future. So there's a good economic incentive for the firms to start policing. Will it keep traders from um, shading the truth? Uh, Well, You know, maybe for a little while, but on Wall Street, everybody is pursuing that last little bit of profit. And so if you can get away with being less than fully honest, I don't see in the future there being that much of a change here, except the firms are going to try to be more careful, or maybe it'll just go further underground.
1: The government hasn't said whether whether they're going to try to retry uh, LitVac. What's your take on it?
3: Uh, Maybe the third time is the charm, but what they're down to is one count left, one transaction, and if they were to retry it, the Second Circuit's message was that there was one bit of evidence in his second trial, and that shouldn't have been admitted, um, and therefore we're going to reverse the conviction. I think the Second Circuit is sending a message here that there's just not enough evidence to prove a fraud when you have investors who are conducting their own analysis. And this is, frankly, an arm's length negotiation. So, you know, when you walk on the used car lot, do you believe everything the salesman says to you? Well, that seems to be the rule here, at least in the mortgage-backed securities bond market, that you better take it uh, with a lot of salt what the other side is saying to you.
1: Now, in the uh, in the trial of uh, Demos, the Connecticut trial, David Demos, it was remarkable that a portfolio manager who was testifying for the government, Eric Mark, said, "When my boss trained me, he always told me to watch out for what people tell you because you have to assume they're lying to you." So that well, kind of evidence came out in the prosecution's case. Well, well, certainly, and, and you know, for,
3: if anybody thinks that. Um, The the, the traders or you know, more generally on Wall Street that they are not a bunch of sharks. Then uh, you are going to get eaten. So, uh, yeah, that are you going to get lied to in a negotiation? Well, you know, in any negotiation, if you're buying a house or a car, someone will say this is my last best offer. Do you actually believe that? Um, You know, you're going to come to a negotiated price. Is that the best price? Well, you can't ever really look back; you can only go forward. So, I, I think the message here is that, look, when you've got parties with relatively equal bargaining uh, strengths, bargaining positions, um, yeah, people are going to not be fully truthful and know it and live with it.
1: So, Peter, the government's record in the trials of the traders charged in this crackdown is mixed, and recently there there have been, as we mentioned, as we've talked about problems. So was the government overreaching in, in initiating this crackdown? I don't think so. I, you, any
3: fraud case is built around a lie. And when you find a lie, you then go from there. And if you can find someone who lost money, then that should give you uh, a pretty good fraud case. But here we're in a, a fairly narrow slice of the market. And I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying that, well, in other areas, you can lie to customers or clients, too. The answer to that is no, you cannot. But here in this area, um, you've got uh, negotiations here. This is not a market like where you buy stock, where you look on the exchange and say, that's a good price. People have to come up with their own valuations. And so in this area... I think the government has learned a lesson that you can't just take the simple fraud case and apply it in a very sophisticated part of the bond market.
1: So, Peter, in 30 seconds, is it likely the government will go forward with some of the other cases?
3: Well, I I wouldn't be surprised if one of the other cases involving Nomura Securities defendants, if the Second Circuit reversed there. I I wonder whether they're going to continue to pursue cases in the mortgage-backed securities market or any kind of sophisticated securities market, it may just be too
1: difficult. Thanks so much, Peter. As always, that's Peter Henning, a professor at Wayne State University Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.